The Incomparable Podcast. Number 49. August 2011. We're back on The Incomparable Podcast. I am Jason Snell, your host. And today we're going to be talking about Pixar, the uh, movie studio that is now a part of Disney, has made uh, some fantastic animated features over the years. In fact, some might say they've never made a bad feature, and then some of us haven't seen Cars 2 yet, so <laughs> we just don't know. Joining me today to talk about Pixar are Steve Lutz. Hi, Steve. Good day to you, sir. Good day. Good day. And John Syracuse. Good evening. Good evening. John, on your other uh, other podcast, your personal podcast called Hypercritical, I, I know there was a section of that um, of a previous episode where you talked a little bit about about Pixar. So in some ways, we're just following up from a we're like the brother from another podcast here. That doesn't rhyme. I mean, it doesn't. So so seriously, I talked about uh, Pixar sort of having this kind of. Um, legend of having never made a bad movie and I, I believe cars 2 is the lowest uh scoring on the uh on the tomato meter at last check i think it was a 30 percent 37 percent positive score which is pretty bad i haven't seen it that seems almost like backlash low to me i mean i have not seen cars 2 yet but my wife and kids uh went out and saw it and they all seem to enjoy it and, and my strong suspicion is that the reason that they get down to 37, 35 on, on the tomato meter is that critics have been sitting around just waiting yeah. for a less than sublime uh, Pixar film. Finally! So they could they could trash it. And the backlash begins. Yes. So in grand form. Up until Cars 2, which is in which is in debate, um, you know, that that's the 12th feature by Pixar. The first 11 almost uh, universally liked. Um so I thought rather than uh, taking a, a stroll from from Toy Story in 1995 through Cars 2, we would uh, do something a little bit more freeform and uh, kind of alternate among the three of us and, and uh, pick out some movies that we particularly like or dislike uh, from Pixar and uh, talk about them in turn. So with that, I think we'll start with uh, Steve Lutz. Do you have a particular favorite Pixar film that you'd like to talk about first? Well, for me, at the moment, it is a tie, and it is only a tie because I just watched Up for the first time two nights ago, and uh, very quickly that became perhaps my favorite Pixar film. So is that the first I'll, pick in the Pixar film draft is is Up? In the uh, Yes, that's that well, it would be, except I'm, I'm still not certain that it quite matches The Incredibles for me. Uh, which would be my my other pick? Um, Why don't you go with Up? Just a t spoiler alert: somebody else <laughs> will pick The Incredibles. So, oh, I figured I figured that would probably happen. Um, the The reason I'm not sure at this point is because I, the the afterglow has yet to fade on Up, which I thought was frankly just magnificent from stem to stern. Um, that's you know, that's the, the, the movie that's famous for uh, the fact that it it uh, has that long. Um, dialogue-less um, scene between the husband and the wife that yes. essentially makes everybody, turns everybody into uh, uh, just weeping ninnies. Well, yeah, and the first, yeah, that's it's roughly the first 11 minutes of the film, and it, it chronicles uh, young Carl Fredrickson's 
uh, early meeting with his future wife, and then of course it you know we we see various snippets of their uh, their married life, and uh, and then the the end of the line for the wife, and uh, and then we of course see Carl and uh, alone and and sad holding the blue balloon that he previously had in his youth. And uh, there's just all these lovely parallels from his youth to, to the, uh, to, uh, to the, the September, October years. And, um, foreshadowing alert, by the way, involving a balloon. Hmm. I mean, in a way, the pathos of that scene is just so perfect. I mean, they hit the notes so, so perfectly, uh, you know, between the, the bits where, um, you know, we discover they can't have children and then they keep going back to this dream they have of being at Paradise Falls. And, and there are all these little details. Like there's a, a scene where um, I think uh, Carl is leaving for the day to go to work and, and um, there's a, a newspaper clipping in the window that says like local zoo employee rescues endangered species or something. And it's about it's about the wife. But it's it's just this tiny little detail that you never it, it never comes up again. But you know it's just it's it's one of those things that just makes the thing work so perfectly. So a lot of people when I talk about it up, they're like, "Oh, that's the movie that makes you cry," and it's like it's totally true. That's the movie that starts out with the story of their life and it makes you cry, but then it turns into actually kind of a zany retro adventure story. You're right, and it's it's an interesting contrast because uh, some of the humor in in Pixar films can be more subtle. Whereas uh, in Up, the the humor is almost all this very broad physical comedy and, and wackiness. And talking dogs, and such a, and talking dogs, and it's it's such a stark contrast to the uh, the emotional sections of the segments of the film. And there's another, obviously, there's that first eleven minutes, and then again towards the end of the film, Carl kind of has his come to Jesus moment where you know he he breaks out of his depression about his wife and decides to have new adventures and and that those are kind of the bookends and then in the middle there's just all this you know wacky bird and dog shenanigans and and uh a whole bunch of stuff that requires vast suspension of disbelief i mean it's kind of a weird juxta- juxtaposition and and i'm not sure how i'm going to feel about it in a week or two after i've thought a little bit longer uh about you know about the film and I'm also not sure that uh, that that it's a film that I'm going to want to revisit a lot, just because so much of what's good about it is is the emotional uh, the emotional moments and the kind of pathos and 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 sadness and where, whereas Incredibles, you know, you you go you you come for the the great action scenes and the the kind of cool, fairly subtly done message. With up, you're there for the emotions, and I'm not just not sure that that's something I'm going to want to watch over and over again. You know, yeah, I it's interesting because it's so notable and it is so touching. But uh, I watched it again after probably a year or so having not seen it, and was actually surprised because I was reminded, oh yes, after that happens, there's a whole movie that's kind of got this wacky adventure with the talking dog, which is. You know, there's a pretty funny bit in the crazy giant bird, and and it's actually pretty good. But you lose, I think, you lose sight of it because of that uh, of that scene in the beginning, and just how notable it is, and just how sad it is. That it's really right. easy. It's kind of hard to get past it to the rest of the movie, even though the rest of the movie is good, and it's good too. They're just, you know, it's like the the cloud that's hanging over the beginning of the movie, and it's hard to remember anything else about it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, it's it. And I think a lot of it's just because that that emotional stuff is just so superbly done. I think you you'd be hard pressed to to match it. 
And and I I will be surprised if Pixar ever does match that level of emotional resonance in in any of their films. Although since probably about I think Toy Story two was really where they started um, always inserting something that would depress the hell out of you. Oh yeah, <laughs> in every film, and they're they're excellent at it. Toy Story two and Toy Story three both have moments that are that are very much in the same vein, but I think that up is probably the pinnacle of the, the tear jerking yeah. moments. And I find it hard to believe they'll ever, they'll ever match that pinnacle. Also, in, because in, it's so in, well done in up. They didn't need, um, to use a Sarah McLachlan song to do it. So, right. Or Randy Newman and Sarah McLachlan, right. They, they didn't need to squeeze it out of you that way. They just got Michael Giacchino and I read an interview with him where he basically said it, that he felt like the the pressure for the movie to succeed was entirely on him because he yes. had to score that entire thing. And if he didn't do it right, the whole movie doesn't come off. So, But he right. did, and it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's marvelous. And and it's something that you don't notice the first time through. I mean, you, you, you notice it's this nice sort of catchy toe-tapping score, but, but – uh, Actually, since since I'm a sucker for the maudlin, I, I after seeing the first 11 minutes, I went back and, and revisited it twice before I finished the rest of the film because I was so impressed by it. And on, on subsequent watches, the the thing that really came to the fore was how brilliant that score was and, and how uh, how unobtrusive it is and yet how much it really, really adds, uh, you know, without getting in the way. Yeah, the, Just a, a excellently done work. Yeah. Um, one of my... Uh, favorite things about Up is that it references one of my favorite books when I was a kid, which is The Little House by Virginia Lee Burton, which is the story of a house that's out in the countryside, and uh, it's built in the past out in the countryside, and then over time, the city comes out uh, and oh, grows up yeah. around it, and then it ends up in between two skyscrapers, and right. and it, the end of the it's very sad, and it's all boarded up, and then and then they 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 pick it up and they move it back out into the country and they and they re- refurbish it and it's a it's really a actually a, a touching kind of somewhat maudlin story and <laughs> and it's directly referenced in up because the same thing happens to his house and then his house right. flies away out of the middle of the city where it where it's ended up um so i i really love that about it that, that you know it can't be anything but a reference to the little house that's great. I, I I remember that book now that you mentioned it, but somehow it didn't come to mind. It's been so long since I've seen it. Yeah, that's that's very cool. Uh, John, any thoughts about Up before we move on? Yeah, I do actually. Uh, I was taking some notes while you were talking about the uh, opening sequence. One of the things that comes to mind is uh, when, whenever I see a Pixar movie, I think about what Pixar is doing that's that's different than what you can do in a live action movie because Pixar really is defined by not so much technology, but the animation, since they're an animation-only studio. And a lot of the positive reaction, I think, for Pixar is that they're, you know, oh, it's an animated movie, and older generations tend to dismiss them as frivolous or kids' movies, but Pixar doesn't accept those limits and will try to do things that regular movies do. It just happens to be with animation. Uh, And I think in the case of Up and, and and that opening sequence, they do what Pixar does a lot, which is, something that's actually harder to do in live action and what and this was actually talked about a little bit when up was uh being reviewed uh in the uh, the mainstream media it was like oh here's a here's a movie that has an old person as a main character and you don't see that so much in live action movies and especially not in kids live action movies if there's an old person in a kids movie it's like 
the scary old man who lives next door or the grumpy grandpa or whatever. But the, the kid is, clear, you know, they always have a, any sort of young adult or child thing has a, a kid of a comparable age as, as the clear main character and the adults are in the background. Uh, or it's Cocoon in, and it's all of the above. Yeah, right. And, and, and that's actually one of the better examples of old people. And, and it, was, uh, it was hailed at the time, I think, as, as being a shocker because it, it featured old people. So, yeah, I think that's the only time uh, before Up that I can think of when that was true, <laughs> except maybe for the grumpy old men's of the world, which were, which were more lampooning the old folk. If, if you think about Cocoon, though, or Cocoon or – I don't know. I can think of another example. There's a couple of other ones out there where – the theme of the movie is old people versus this movie where the theme is not old people. The theme is, you know, there, there are other themes, but one of the characters happens to be an old person. Yes, he has a loss, but he could have just as easily been younger and has lost his wife at an earlier age and not been old. Like, it's not about being old, whereas Cocoon is so central on you're, you're getting to the point where you're going to die. You're with a bunch of old people, you know. So so this was different in, in the respect that it happened to be an old person. It's like a movie starring a gay person versus a movie about being gay. You know what I mean? Hmm. It's right, crossing right. that threshold. And the, but, the, but the main thing that struck me is that if you try to do that opening sequence in live action, show the same thing. Show the little kid. He meets the girl. They grow up. They're, they're married. They get older. They're an ice, you know, just do the whole thing shot for shot, but with actual old people. And then have that old person be in the movie throughout the rest of the thing. I think it's harder to make... A, a movie with an older person that audiences and especially children will relate to in the same way, simply because old people are not as attractive as young people. And when you see old people in a in a live action movie, they always want to show you the old person as the framing device and step you back to when he was Brad Pitt. And the most of the movie is with the old guy as Brad Pitt. And then you look at him like, oh, that old guy used to be Brad Pitt. But you spend right, most of your Titanic, movie, yeah. well, you spend most of your movie looking at Brad Pitt. And yeah, you relate it back to that person, but they don't have the bravery to have, you know, the guy jumping off blimps, flying planes, uh, you know, rescuing the kid. Like, no one wants to see that old guy. But in animation, you can show an old person who's also cute and adorable. And like, like if you look at his face, they basically smoothed out the wrinkles. He's not, he doesn't look so much like an actual old person that it reminds us of our own mortality or is, is unattractive or whatever. He fits in as a character in animation. He looks a little like the heat miser now that I think about it. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like claymation or smooth. And he's yeah, clearly yeah. a caricature of an old person, but it's, it's somehow not as off-putting as seeing as an actual old person on film. And I, I always thought that was interesting because I thought, I think if you did this opening scene with live action, it wouldn't work as well. It would be more difficult to get it to work for that same right. reason. And, you know, people think it's going to be like ageist. Oh, old people are ugly. It's just a fact of life. You know, that we get less attractive as we get older, you know, whatever you want to say about old men being distinguished or whatever. It's just not the same as looking at Brad Pitt. But when you look at Carl, he's, he looks just fine because he's an animated character, you know? Right. And you uh, certainly couldn't do this, the scenes where in live action, where Carl is, jumping off a blimp or dragging the house yeah. on his own, you know. You wouldn't it, believe it, be, it because you'd say, It's implausible oh, as it is, but because right. it's animated, you can just about forgive it, you know. You also have the, the technical issues of uh, showing somebody at various ages means you have to cast people who sort of look like them at various ages. Right. Yeah, you have which to have a discontinuity. You, you can just totally blow past that. And uh, it's funny, though, that you say... He, you know, usually they're they're the grumpy old man or the scary neighbor. In many ways, that's exactly what this movie is playing against: is that he is the grumpy old man who's the scary neighbor. But they they, they explain why, right? Know? And it's from his viewpoint and not from the viewpoint of the kid, even though yeah, he has yeah. the kid, which is a that's really great reversal. flip. 
Yeah, the kid comes to his door. We don't follow the kid and then end up seeing the kid going up to the grumpy old man house and being scary. It's the other way around. We are with the old man. Yeah, we are the and grumpy the kid, old man. The kid, and then the kid comes to the door. He's the, he's the intruder or the scary one or the strange thing. I kind of disagree that it's not about being old. I mean, it's it's less about being old, certainly, than Cocoon or Grumpy Old Men or something that's, that's more or less exclusively about being old. But in a way, I think it's exactly about being old. I mean, we're, we have the, the whole sequence where you know, post Ellie passing away, he's coming down the stairs slowly and grumpily in his chair. And he's he's doing all these very stereotypically old things. It's 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 almost his the whole journey is almost his discovery that being old doesn't mean you have to be a grumpy, crusty old bastard, you know. But to John's point, it could also be about um, getting over loss, right? I mean, the, you could you could say that he was younger and lost his wife and had decided to close himself off from the world. I mean, it's it, it's more resonant because he's old because right. older people close themselves off from the world all the time. But it could have you know they could have told that story and had him be young and closed off. And it's like you've got something to live for, right? Could still be the message. But um, it, I think it's intensified by the fact that, that, you know, he's old and he could he has every reason to just give up and stop living more sure. than a, a widower would. It's not so much about his mortality. That's exactly what I was going to say, is that if he was if he was 40 and lost his wife, he'd tell the exact same story. He's not a, he's he's mortality is not looming over him. He's, he's not like, oh, the end of my road is coming. He's lost the will to live because he lost his wife. And that same exact thing would have happened if they were 50, because he feels that he didn't get to do all the things he wanted to do with his wife when she was alive. And that would have been true no matter when she died. They cut out that scene at the end of the uh, at the end of the musical montage where he where his doctor tells him he has six months to live. They just took that out. <laughs> totally changed the movie. It's your prostate, Carl. Yeah, and 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 there's not. Yeah, you know, I mean, again, Cocoon. The whole thing is like you can do things now that you couldn't do when you were old. And obviously, this movie is not bound by that at all. He goes off and does crazy things. Uh, one one more point and up. Uh, even though we will soon talk about uh, inevitably an actual PG rated movie, I thought Up had the most PG or possibly PG-13 moment in any Pixar movie. Uh, can can either one of you guess which moment I'm going to cite now? Hmm. So so maybe this was just me, and it, it was a short moment, but I it, it jumped out at me as even more out of place, not not so much out of place, but even more jarring than the opening sequence. Is it where he clocks the guy and, and his, his forehead bleeds? Yeah, exactly. So it's a moment of adult anger you know, displaced anger, but still anger at right. someone who isn't an enemy. And, you know, sort of the same way when you get angry and you realize that what, what a monster you become injuring someone who is not like, Oh, do do do. Like it's not comical cartoon violence. It's actual violence. And they show blood. So, I mean, even if they didn't show blood, I feel like you never see that kind of non superhero, non cartoon against an innocent person by the protagonist who's angry for no good reason, you know, displaced anger from other issues hurting somebody and then the blood on top of it that right I, I the movie is rated g but that moment was like geez this is gonna be so you come off that that montage where you're like all right kids don't understand because they haven't lived a life they don't understand the the deep you know emotional impact of this segment about living a life with someone having them die blah blah but certainly they understand hurting someone even if they don't understand that it wasn't you know they understand this guy is not an enemy or not a comical enemy and and our hero that we're with hurt this person out of anger that really stood out to me. It is intense, and and the first thing that I thought when I saw that was uh, was, wow, he drew blood with a tennis ball. He must really have whacked him. I mean, he must have really been pissed. 
So you're right. I mean, that's that's what you think. It's, it's a that, metal he's device. He's in serious he's rage. He really <laughs> whacked him. So, like, I, I've been trying to decide, you know, I've seen that up a couple of times, like, does that does that add to the movie or is it out of place? I think, I still think it adds to the movie because if we ever do a podcast about children's movies, I'll probably talk about the fact that children's movies, you want to have something in them that challenges children emotionally just a little bit, you know, that's sort of how they grow. You don't want it to be overwhelming, but you want it to be a little something. So I think the opening sequence is probably mostly lost on, on very young children who aren't that empathetic and don't understand, you know, the adult lives and relationships. But I think especially the little spark of blood that you get there, kids know about, you know, when the red stuff comes out, it's bad. And and the, the scene is not played for laughs. Uh, and it's not cartoon violence, and it's over very quickly, and you move on quickly on to the next thing of this guy that you're following. I think that moment adds to the movie. It doesn't take away, um, and it's good that they didn't, you know, it's good that it's a short moment, but I'm, I'm very glad that it's there. No, I, I definitely think it adds, both for that reason and because it's it really speaks in a very simple way to uh, to just exactly how depressed and and lost Carl is without Ellie. That, that he would he would go to that because all we've seen up to that point is just shots of them being happy go lucky and uh, you know picnicking up on the hill and and the juxtaposition of him you know flying into a rage and cracking the guy over the skull with his cane is, is really strong uh, not to mention of course you need you need something to get him to to be in fear for his house in order to move the story forward but yeah I think that's definitely a positive. And that's also much better than, I mean, they did the stereotypical things too, but the stereotypical things are, go away, kid, I'm grumpy because, you know, expressing his, oh, I'm closed off from the world and I don't like kids or happy things, Bob, that's the stereotypical thing. But the more realistic manifestation is him doing crazy out of character things, you know, in terms of getting violent, which is not something that he would have done in his normal life. And is much, it, it's much stronger statement than him just being grumpy around kids because you've seen so many old people be grumpy around kids and you always know, oh, well, you know, he's really a nice guy at heart. This Here's here's someone doing something that's unflattering, that someone something that he wouldn't want someone else to see that's not endearing or adorable old people grumpiness type stuff, you know? I'm just going to say that uh, when we started this podcast, I had some concern whether we would be able to fill an entire <laughs> podcast talking about Pixar, and it turns out we could fill half a podcast talking about one Pixar movie. <laughs> we could probably go the rest of the way with up, but we should probably move on. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I think it's great, and I think it shows the the depth of these of these films that we could devote that much time to it. Let's move on to John's John's pick in this uh, Pixar draft. I I assume John that you you come to speak a little more about The Incredibles. Yes, uh, it's my favorite. It's your favorite too. And it is. <laughs> it's everybody's favorite. I believe I said in our superhero movie podcast that it's my favorite superhero movie. Period. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'd have to think about that more to to make that decision. But it's it's my clear favorite Pixar movie, and I didn't think that after I saw it. Like, well, I guess I was a bigger fan of, for example, Toy Story two, or, or uh, you know, I maybe Finding Nemo, like. When I saw it, I'm like, oh, it's another good Pixar movie. But over time, it has grown to overshadow all the other Pixar movies. Perhaps as I've seen each one of them eight million times as my children have been watching them, it gives me a, a pretty solid view of the uh, the, the uh, repertoire of Pixar. And Incredible stands above them. I, I was trying to think of the, the reasons why. Uh, the first thing is that I think it's – is it still the only PG-rated one? I think so. It was the it was the first PG rated, and despite the PG moment that we just talked about from Up, uh, the fact that it's PG rated 
gives it a leg up when you're asking an adult which is your favorite movie because you are constrained by rated G movies. And some, some, I, I really do like rated G movies. Some of my favorite movies ever are rated G movies. We'll talk about on the kids' podcast, I'm sure, someday. Yes. Uh, but being PG frees you a little bit. And the, the next thing is that it's a superhero movie, and I like superhero movies. And, so, and that's a topic that PG rating lends itself to. So you're just a little bit less constrained about, uh, you know, on, on the things that superheroes tend to do. Uh, and all, all the reasons that you like a superhero movie, you know, so Pixar is not doing a straight up superhero. They never, almost never do anything straight up. Whenever Pixar is doing anything, it's always, possibly it's the animation angle. You always expect, oh, there's going to be a Pixar movie about X. They're going to examine the absurdities of X. So, for example, Monsters, Inc., the whole movie is about, you know, monsters are big, scary things, monsters in your closet, but they have an absurd angle on the monsters where it's their job and stuff like that. And, and toys, you know, there's going to be lots of in-jokes about toys and stuff like that. Well, superheroes... They're not going to do Batman Begins animated or anything even close to that, or even just, you know, Superman 1 animated version. It's not going to be a superhero story. It's going to do all the little in-jokes and references and funny, absurd things about superheroes. But the, the great thing about Incredibles is it will, it's also, in its own right, as Jason pointed out, a great superhero movie, while also making fun of superheroes. And that balance is incredibly hard, because you don't want to be like the greatest American hero or some other you know scary movie-type parody of a superhero movie, because that... I mean, I guess you can do that, but that's not Pixar style. It has it both ways. It you gets to poke fun at superheroes and the, the conventions of superheroes, while also conforming to them all and using them to make a great superhero movie. Um, and and on top of that, it's kind of a unique take on superheroes where it's not they they decide to have their own twist. You know, they have their own rules. I guess that's kind of an amalgam. Of everything is out there, but you know, the no capes angle, uh, the heroes who are loved by society then shunned by them is kind of a Watchmen angle. Like no capes was too actually. Yeah, it's kind of a melange <laughs> of of existing superhero things all pushed together. But it is kind of unique. Like when I think about. The superhero universes. I can I can clearly picture you know Superman's universe and Batman's universe. Well, I don't know with the DC reboot, but anyway. <laughs> but, but I can picture the Incredibles universe. They've made their own thing, even if it is a derivative. Um, and, and the other thing in its favor is that it's, it speaks to suburban white males with families. So obviously, if you got a bunch of suburban <laughs> white males with families together who like superheroes and like superhero movies, you have a movie where the main character has a family and he, he's got all the type of things that, you know, it, it's it's a, such a clear map of like when you're older and thinking back to your younger days and now you have responsibilities and your job is unfulfilling. I mean, it's a slam dunk on just like every thematic front for geeks like us uh, yeah. to be moving. And it executes on all of them so well. Like none Speak of them Speak for yourself, sir. <laughs> no, no, you, you pretty much got me pegged. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, everything about it, like the message is not drilled into you. It's subtly, you know, like, I, I don't know, maybe they could come out and say it a little bit, but like, yeah, that that's the best thing for the for for the Incredibles for me by far. Just piping in for a second is is the fact that the message is so strong and yet so subtle. Yeah, they don't bang you over the head with it. Like for example, the the second half of Wall-E, where it's just you know too heavy-handed. Uh, you know, Pixar as as hit or miss on on the message front, but in this one, it's weaved through. The, the, the great thing about it is that it, since it's such a great superhero movie, the message is weaved throughout the story. It is not delivered by exposition or tacked on to another story about good guys versus bad guys. It, it is the story. The story is, you know, it's so nicely intertwined. Uh, and it has some of my favorite scenes. I think we've talked about in the past podcasts where just 
send-ups of things like the, uh, I think I've said this before, my favorite scene in the entire movie is when he arrives on the island with the sort of James Bond type sequence arriving in the autopilot thing. That stands up against any actual James Bond sequence that it's, that it's, you know, playing off of. It's just so, so amazing that when it parodies the things, it transcends the things that it's parodying. Uh, I I, I just love this movie. I, I can, I cannot say enough good things about it. Yeah, I, I one thing about a lot of these Pixar movies is that they take something that is a, you know, they've got the kind of adult thing that's of interest to adults, and then they've got the stuff that kids like. And I think in some ways, this is the best example of that, because the kids really don't get the midlife crisis thing. They just, and they just don't get it at all. It is so far outside of the realm of a kid even beginning to understand it, I think. And yet that is a big part of it. But it doesn't detract because from the kids' perspective, you know, my kids are much more focused on on Dash and Violet and the uh, and syndrome and what he's going to be doing, and um, then talking about uh, you know, the fact that Bob has got a stancy new car and is is working out and isn't saying to his wife where he's uh where he's going every day. But that that plays a a part, and then the overarching theme on top of everything else is really about kind of daring to be. Uh, daring to be exceptional and not fitting in with the crowd and you know that, that that's not only well done but it's such a great message to have in a movie so that yes I, I, it it check, checks all the boxes for me too which of course it does yeah the, the, one, one of my favorite speaking of things that kids don't like two of my favorite little sections of the movie that I guess you have to I guess it's more of even not just family but marriage angle. Uh, the one scene where he's he's on the phone with the secret agent type thing, and his wife is calling him. What was she calling him for dinner or something yeah. like that? Right. And we'll the other on one the where the with. wife is Nobody. <laughs> calling him. We sent them. Be right there. Be right there. And the other one with the, uh, the the wife is vacuuming by herself in the house, and something gets stuck in the rollers. I mean, it's yeah. just the, the the images of what actual suburban married life is like and even just even just the offhand thing like uh what the, the what was his name uh frozone screaming where his super suit is right and she she won't tell him where it is she says why do you want to know just tell me where it is <laughs> that is th- those type of little tiny moments that you know it that's not what the movie is about but it's just it rings so true and it brings you so much into this universe that you're willing to buy all of the the other stuff uh, and, and you talk about the kids being excited into the superhero parts in the kids' movie. The kids are not the main characters in this movie by a long shot, and yet kids will watch it and think that the kids are the main characters. Yeah. Like, it's, you know what I mean? It's it's such a, it's like three different movies in one, depending on who's watching it. It's interesting. I think of, of all the Pixar films that my kids have seen, that's probably the one that they're least interested in. It just hasn't really, it just hasn't really grabbed them. And I think part of it is because... I, that's probably the darkest of the Pixar films in terms of uh, you actually get a sense that there's a possibility that these characters might die. And part of that's probably because they're human no, well, it's, as opposed it's, to it, – Well, but it's rated PG and, and there is that moment that is I think, I think in some ways the best moment in the movie even though it's just dialogue. It's where, um, where uh, Elastigirl, where Holly Hunter tells the kids – um, you know those Saturday morning cartoons, right? These people aren't like that. If they find you, they will kill you. Which right. is like, oh my god, right? <laughs> but but that it, it's so it really sets the stakes higher, and and um, so it is darker. But at the same time, I, I, 
to, I guess maybe this is a lot what John said earlier is you've got to, there are ways where you need to push the story and, and challenge even the kids when they're watching it. Um, I love that moment. And every time I, I watch it with my kids, I look at them while they're, while they're watching it because that's the moment where, you know, it injects some real jeopardy that wasn't there before and it works, but it is, it is dark and it is a little scary. Then they have that uh, the the most accurate visual manifestation of the the mental state of parenting after the jet explodes when Elastigirl wraps her entire body around her two children to save them from the exploding plane, which is the thing that every parent wishes they could do but can't actually do because it's impossible that you can you could physically envelop your children and save them from explosion. You know what I mean? Like that that one little scene there. It's it's a superhero scene. It's ridiculous. And it has no bearing on reality, but at the same time, if you are a parent and you watch that, you're like, "Yes, that's what I would do if I yes. could." You know what I mean? That's the. In fact, that scene is the one that gets my wife to tear up. Is the is where she where she's trying to save her kids on the plane, and then she has to wrap around them when the when the plane yeah. explodes. It's because of the emotional weight that it carries. For for a parent, for people who understand parenting, whereas the kids' angle is yeah. like you said, the previous one they got the speech about that these people will kill you, you know. So again, uh, something for everybody, and not not bang uh, hitting you over the head with it. Right. No, it's great. <laughs> what can we say? <laughs> if you don't like the Incredibles, there is something wrong with you. Would Would you call it incredible? I, I yes, yes. It would be just a recursive incredible, incredible Incredibles. Just forever. Uh, if you don't like the Incredibles, you you can't be my friend anymore. No. That's just where what it comes down to. Yes, seriously. <laughs> so my wife and I um, were talking about this before I started recording, and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do because after after the Incredibles, there are a couple that maybe fall um, next in line, and one of one of them would be Toy Story Two. But you know, I think. Rather than pick one of the Toy Stories in this round, I'm going to go with Monsters, Inc. Um, Very nice. Which... It's a parenting thing, isn't it's, it? It may be, but it's early. Um, it, you know, it's their fourth movie. It, it, it's it got some really interesting... It's got an interesting look. Um, you know, the furry monsters and all of that. I love the conceit that the doors are uh you know basically like teleportation devices and it and they 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 explore that conceit to its absolute limit in a way that it could have been very easy for it to just be a one sort of thing well it's a portal but instead it's like the doors and the doors go to different places and you can fall through in the action scene at the end they're falling through doors into other places and then back outdoors and you know there're 90 degree angles where gravity shifts as they fall through the door you know, it's portal. It is. It is portal, right? But it's also kind of a play on that classic hallway scene that you used to get in the wacky comedies. The you know, Benny you got Hill the hallway kind of and the thing. Guy would, yeah, exactly. The guy would disappear into a door on the left and then reappear in the foreground yeah. on the right. Yeah. So there's it's a very cool sequence. So there's all of that. There's what what we mentioned earlier, which is there's just that nice Pixar flip on it, which is that the monsters are just as scared of the kids as the kids are scared of the monsters. The monsters are just trying to do their jobs. Um, that I like. There's the variations on the monster kind of body types and these characters that you couldn't do in any other way, but in animation, where there's like, you know, uh, Billy Crystal's character Mike is 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 an eye with legs, 
And then John Goodman's character is the big furry guy who's a big furry monster. And it, yet when you look at like the way he's colored and his his colored kind of interesting multicolored fur with spots, you know, at, at first glance in silhouette in the dark, he's scary. But in the light of day, he's not scary at all. And then the whole meta level of, yes, kids are afraid of what's under the bed and what's in the closet. And and yet, um, you know, we once you get to know them, once you take a little look f- further, they're just like, you know, the rest of us, the monsters are people too i guess is 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 what the message is it, it's um you know it's a charming movie even now um all these years later it, i there's just so many things that i like about that movie including the fact that it's got that emotional resonance that pixar is always good at and it's got some great action and you know the end of that movie where he they they piece the door back together so that sully can go and see boo the little girl um one last time you know, if we're talking oh, you, about those scenes, up just that, mentioning it. the scenes that get you <laughs> in, in my top five Pixar tear inducing moments, you know, that's pretty high up on the list. So, um, you know, Monsters, um, you know, is it a better movie than than Toy Story 2 or Toy Story 3 or Finding Nemo? I don't know. It's so hard for me to pick, but there are things in it that I that I still just look at really fondly. Um and you know the the door conceit i think pushes it over the top because they they use it in every they they squeeze every possible thing you could squeeze out of that concept out of it which when i was watching it i thought for the first time i thought well what about this and what about this oh well they're not going to deal with it it's just to get a, get them through the door to the other world it's like the lion the witch and the wardrobe there's a portal and you go through it and that's it oh no no, we're going to explore every single thing that this could mean if there were doors that were portals. So that's yeah. One monsters. of the things that I like about uh, Monsters Inc. and and I actually probably would have gone with you on that with that being my third favorite. Although largely it was be- specifically because of the whole uh, scene at the end there, which which actually I was choking up with you talking about it just now. Uh, but I, I it's really the first of the Pixar films where they could be completely liberated from from any kind of realistic constraints i mean the toys you know it's toys but of course they're they're living inside of andy's house so you know there's there's some kind of a real world constraint put on what the toys can reasonably do um you know bugs are bugs and they can only do bug things and they can do some cool things they can you get the cool perspective of the city that's constructed of empty popcorn boxes and so forth um but Monsters, Inc., I think, is really the first film where they were able to to put together a completely unrealistic um, a cityscape. Um, they weren't constrained at all by the, the character designs, as you mentioned. Right. Every monster is and different. <laughs> I think they, they really, for the first time, were able to completely go hog wild with their imaginations and just come up with the craziest things they could. And I think they did a bang up job on that. It also, uh, Monsters, Inc., I think has probably my favorite Pixar running gag in the form of uh, George Sanderson, who is the, uh, the, the, the unwitting dupe who invariably gets, uh, gets sanitized every time something oh, right. from, the, uh, from the human world. He gets world. the sock thrown on him. Right. He gets the sock on him. He gets shaved down, I think, two or three times. <laughs> it's, it's a great sequence. It's, it's uh, certainly one of my favorites in terms of uh, just just pure humor and a running gag for him. I think the the uh, the adult angle in this movie, which I hadn't thought of until I'd seen it again recently, is the uh, blue collar factory work. The fact that the monsters 
are going to work in a factory and have a boss and have a hierarchy within work and have either, you know, satisfaction with their job or, you know, where, where, how is their working life going? Something, again, right. that the kids probably can't relate to, but any adult who has ever had a job can relate to that workplace-like atmosphere, atmosphere and and their livelihood is threatened too, right? That like the underpinnings of the industry right. that they're it's, in is an economic threatened. threat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That unemployment is the threat and economics and unemployment and energy policy. And, and that, you know, it's, it's just there. It's in the background. It's the premise of the movie, but it's for the adults. So we can relate to this insane world with ridiculous creatures because they're just, you know, they're collecting a check and punching in and punching out. So this is what you got to do. And the conflict know? with the primary villain is, is primarily a, a uh, climbing up the corporate ladder kind of deal. Yeah. So you got that too. It's like working girl with monsters. Mm. <laughs> no, it's like working girl. <laughs> uh, wow. I don't know what I mean by I that. I don't even know. Melanie Griffith is a lovely lady. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I, the other thing is that uh, Billy Crystal uh, was, I don't know if he was wasted in this movie. I think he was good in this movie. But I think it was early in Pixar's development that if, if Pixar had Billy Crystal now, or if they had Billy Crystal at his prime now, they could do even more with him. He could carry an entire movie himself because he does sort of overshadow John Goodman. And he does it in – I would compare it to – this is the light side. The dark side is Robin Williams in Aladdin, right? Where right. He's talented, but he overwhelms the whole movie, and it's just about Robin Williams. Billy Crystal plays a character here, and you know it's Billy Crystal, and he, he adds all the value he can, but he doesn't dominate the movie or do silly things. It's, that mostly just has to do with the writing, but I would say this is a, a good example of, of Robin Williams uh, in Aladdin, and Billy Crystal, I really think, could carry one of these movies himself uh, without the John Goodman angle. Uh, I was if actually going to say that Billy Crystal is probably the the worst part of the film for me, just because you he, like he's it? distracting. No, no, he's he, his. It works for the, because he's got great lines and he delivers them well. But at the same time, he's just being Billy Crystal. I mean, I, I don't. I, I, there's not enough of a difference between the character and and the way he delivers his lines and the way Billy Crystal just generally delivers his his stand up lines. And wow. uh, what what that does to me is it brings it dangerously close to the realm of the DreamWorks film, where he, you know you've got a guy that's just allowed to riff in the same style that he always he always does in stand up or in his his other acting gigs or whatever. That's the Robin Williams and Aladdin problem too. Exactly. Right. Which, and it, oh, it just drives me up the wall. But, but I think it avoids that because he he has an actual character arc. He has his, he's not just the wisecracking sidekick. He has his own problems and his own things that he's trying to get done. He's not just there to serve the needs of John Goodman. He's not just there to advance the plot. He has his girlfriend. He has his own concerns about his working life and their relationship and he he He's actually, I mean, I guess you could say he was not so much reprising his stand-up as, like, it's it's the guy from When Harry Met Sally, because he has relationship yeah. issues and he's funny and wisecracking. Maybe you could you could fault him for that. Yeah, to me, though, it's like watching Billy Crystal with a character arc and one eye instead of watching a character with a character arc and Billy Crystal's yeah. voice. Well, so here, here's the litmus test. Did you like When Harry Met Sally? I did. Yeah. It's right. one of my favorite all right. movies of all time, all right. actually. Just making sure you're not just anti-Billy Crystal. And I like City Slickers, too, in which he plays Billy Crystal with a hat. All right, that's taking it too far. But that said, John, um, there are parts of When Harry Met Sally where it's very clearly just Billy Crystal doing his stand-up and they've stuck it in the movie, right? But I he's mean, so likable. It, it, he is very likable. And again, if I had Billy Crystal in my movie, I would say, Billy, whatever, just go. 
Run, just make your jokes, and we'll leave them in because they're funny. Do the right? Oscar hosting thing. Well, and, see, and, yeah. and we'll fix it in yeah, post. He, he was doing his stand up, but his his him as a person, you can imagine him in real life doing that shtick too, because it's not his stand up is not alien to his personality. He's just like that. And you know, if he was in a store and picking up a pickle or something, he would do a little skit about the pickle that he didn't write beforehand, but it's just the way he is. You know, I, I want to see um, I want to see Pixar's uh, next movie be a remake of When Harry Met Sally, where Billy Crystal is a giant green eyeball. There you'll finally get your PG-13 scene. Might even push it to an R. I'll have what the <laughs> pink monster is having. <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of disappointed that they canceled Newt, because had you heard the plot synopsis of Newt? Uh, yeah, isn't that, isn't that a, a, like a lab test uh, animal who's paired with a with a the last surviving animal in the world right. and it's a romantic comedy yeah it's basically like a romantic comedy with lizards and i would it would have been interesting to see pixar do that because the lizard and lab angle would have been good for you know skewering scientific experiments and all those type of things whatever but at its heart it would be a romantic comedy and i think that uh, i would like to see a pixar romantic comedy that is a genre they have not they haven't mind yet yeah that would be a it's kind of, of a shame that got that got canned but well, I don't know. Wally for the first uh, the first the first act of Wally could arguably be considered a romantic comedy. Yeah, kind of, and then it goes off the rails. I, I think <laughs> I think that's true. You could you could argue. Well, it's it's Wally is in you know is a romance in a way that that the other Pixar movies aren't. Um, I, I want something you mentioned when you mentioned Robin Williams and Aladdin. I wanted to mention here that, and you mentioned DreamWorks. One of the things that I love about Pixar movies, and that I think is a grievous mistake of the DreamWorks movies, is um, Pixar movies exist in a timeless world. They're movies right. that are designed... Um, I had a journalism professor who worked at the New York Daily News, and he always said that the Daily News was meant to be read by people living in New York, and that the New York Times was meant to be used in reference libraries so that 20 years time people could find out what life was like back then. And that's how sort of how I feel about Pixar is like Pixar, they build it to be timeless. They build it to be something that you can watch with your kids in 20 years or 30 years. Whereas, you know, I showed my kids Aladdin and it's like, yeah, he's doing like William F. Buckley references. And it's just danger field. So dated. And, and Pixar seems to be, kind of brutally tough about just no we're not going to do things that are going to be non-classic kind of references and i love that about them because the, you know the shrek right. movies are not gonna they're not going to age well at all right. because they're all about current popular culture references and i think it's a exactly. i think it's a huge mistake to go down that route when you should i, I think pixar's got it exactly right which is you, you can't do that you can't You've got to be timeless because these are these are you're trying to make a classic kids movie, right? The last thing you want to do when you're trying to make a classic kids movie is make it so that nobody will understand the references in, in 15 years. It's not so much that they age poorly, which they do, but that it's it's a lazy way to write. Even in the moment when, when they're relevant, they're not as funny as a genuinely funny written right. joke sequence. Both because are true. you're relying right. on the, the familiarity with this thing to get you out of having to write an actual gag, which is just it's just right. lazy. It's lazy. It can be funny, but it is lazy and it completely sabotages, I think, the long life of your film. And but you're right. It it it's classier. It's 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 better to go yeah, for the right. true joke instead of the kind of topical reference 
And Pixar just doesn't do that. And it's particularly bad in some of the cases you mentioned, like uh, the Buckley reference was dated 20 years before oh, yeah. Aladdin ever came out. And, and I actually quite enjoyed Shrek, but I think as I was watching Shrek, I could smell the freshness date coming up, like within the next two weeks for half of the jokes in the movie. Yeah. And I was thinking that this is, some of these jokes are tired and were tired decades ago. Goes to and, the soundtracks and, too, right? I mean, they, the Pixar has... Uh, yeah, Smash Mouth has no place in a classic film. Well, I'm sorry. Exactly, right? That 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 is what I was getting at. Well, well put. It's it's that you want. They're, Pixar's really careful with the soundtrack, which is not to say that they haven't done some popular music. There's some popular music in Cars, but it's it, you know they've carefully chosen and not like let's get a hit from the last three years. It's like let's get songs about cars and we'll ha you know have them remade in a certain style. And, and you know, with the or they or they compose their own music, right? They get Randy Newman or somebody else to write a song in a style they want about their uh, topic. And you know, we can quibble about Randy Newman because a lot of people feel like every Randy Newman song sounds the same. Not, not everyone, just half of them. But um, you know, not but, when they're sung by Sarah McLachlan, strangely. That's enough. right. But Pixar, you know, again goes that extra mile to be timeless and classic. And it it you know absolutely pays off compared to that. That's why they are above the other movies. This is not to say that there aren't some other good animated uh, and computer animated features that have been made since Toy Story came out. There there are. I, I will defend you know several of them, but um, you know that's usually a huge failing of them is their their kind of cheap uh, uh, pop culture reference humor instead of trying to go for something that's going right. to stand the test of time. It's like animated scary movie. Yeah, exactly. That'll be good. In for a live-action world, world, the only movies that dare to do that are the scary movies. You never see, like, in, even just in a run-of-the-mill, well, it's like the bottom of the barrel. Like, live-action movies seem much more reticent to do the pop culture reference, I guess because those people have more experience, or the writers, or, you know, the rewriters just know you got to cut that out. But in an animated movie, they're like, yeah, you want to make reference to that? Go ahead. But in live-action... No, I think they do it because they can get away with it. I mean, they 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 know their audience, and and I mean, in the case of the scary movie films, the first one was actually pretty decent, and then they've they've followed on with just the same stuff repeated over and over again, and the the pop culture references get shorter timed and and less amusing right. as they go on. But they're made to be disposable. But at this point, they've got exactly, and they've got an audience that's happy to absorb that and 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 eat the disposable film and get a kick out of it and toss it away, and I think. The uh, the DreamWorks folks think their audience is unsophisticated, and they pander to them basically. Right, right. Or they or they 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 know that they can get away with being lazy and writing crap, and they think that the their audiences won't catch it because they're kids and they're not sophisticated enough. I guess is where I was trying to go with that for the last five and a half minutes. All our listeners uh, who work at DreamWorks have now hurled their iPod out of their car and run over it a few times and are unsubscribed. Well, no, they've they've greatly improved, I have to say. DreamWorks has yeah. since since the early Shrek days. They they certainly don't do that as much as they used to. Megamind is a DreamWorks and I thought that was actually a really good movie uh, with but but I think they learned some lessons, right? Or at least they 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 that movie in particular is not as uh pop culture focused, but it's still really stunt cast. Which is the other part of it, right? Is the casting. Right. There are stars in Pixar movies, stars' voices, but I rarely feel like the um, the parts are stunt cast. Now, Billy Crystal and John Goodman actually is an example of kind of more stunt casting. But in the early days, I think they did more of that with you know again uh, with uh, with Tom Hanks and 
and uh you Tim know Allen. and Tim Allen exactly but like up is is um Lou Grant right yeah. Ed <laughs> right Asner, it's right. Ed Asner but no you know oh boy an Ed Asner movie at last hooray right <laughs> nobody is saying that and, and because it's just not it's just not relevant i mean cars owen wilson is in cars but and Bonnie Hunt and Larry the Cable Guy, right? I mean, they were cast, but they weren't cast because they're going to bring in the people. And I think maybe that's that's something that that Pixar does better than other studios too. Because as much as I lo- love um, Megamind, I am reminded that it is very specifically Will Ferrell and Tina Fey. And actually, Will Ferrell right. doesn't bother me so much because that's an outlandish character. The Tina Fey kind of bothers me because it's like, well, she kind of looks like Tina Fey and she kind of doesn't and she sounds exactly like Tina Fey because it's Tina Fey. And it's like, I felt like too on the nose and not not the right decision right. compared to something like that. And to some control. extent, I think that's a little bit where Disney went wrong over the years where they, they gradually transitioned from, from having unknowns voicing their characters to having increasingly famous people. And uh, you know, for a while, they sort of teetered on the brink, where they had guys like Terry Thomas and uh, and Phil Harris, who just had big booming voices, but weren't necessarily known for their personalities or their, you know, the films they'd done or the TV shows they'd been on. Um, and and now they've completely made the transition into uh, we have um, oh, who did the Tangled? Oh, who was the that? voice of the the girl in Tangled? Mandy Moore. Young- Mandy Moore, right. right. But Although she's, 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 she's somewhat actress, less relevant right? than she once was, and she's become an actress, yeah. But and uh, but but certainly, I, I think probably the pinnacle of that was the uh, the Robin Williams casting. Yeah. But it's 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 funny how much their their uh, the enjoyment of their films for me kind of follows that exact same sort of uh, path. I was going to pick Ants as the low point. Oh dear. With a Z. It's low point of stunt casting. Low point of make the same movie that Pixar is making, but much worse. And and low point of characters, uh, you know, trying to make the characters in the movie. What that out? I think they had Woody Allen and Sylvester Stallone, if I recall correctly. (laughs) Some crazy combination (laughs) of people. And then you had ants' faces that looked like Sylvester Stallone's computerized head shoved on an ant. And Woody Allen, it was just that was that was a real low. It's a bad. That's why Bugs Life looks so good in retrospect. You're like, do you remember ants? Boy, Bugs Life was way better than that. (laughs) Well, and again, that's that's a major. That's their second release. And who are the top liners there? It's Dave Foley. And David Hyde Pierce and um, Julia Louis Dreyfus, and I mean again, Pixar picking kind of known actors, good actors, but not for their star appeal. Yeah, because not, it's not just putting their butts voice. in the seats. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that Brad Pitt is the superhero in Megamind, honestly, just like totally irrelevant, right? That's that's yeah. why that works in a way that it doesn't. If it's you know just it's Eddie Murphy, he's a donkey, he's crazy. <laughs> Pixar, Pixar disguise. I don't know if it disguises the voices, but like for example, when when you mentioned that Holly Hunt was in The Incredibles, I had never realized that she was Elastigirl. Yeah, Holly until Hunt. you mentioned that. But now when you say it, like, yeah, that is Holly Hunt. And Craig never... T. Nelson, who who you know, Craig T. Nelson is Mister Incredible. I'd never coach. I'd never think that. I see the characters in the movie, and I don't even think like I guess maybe they don't have distinct voices or whatever. Very rarely in a Pixar movie, unless it's really egregious, like John Goodman. I mean, you're, and Billy right. Crystal, you're going to pick them out. 
Well, they also don't make the mistake of, of trying to make the, the characters look a little bit like the voice actors, which is something that Disney started and, and it's gotten worse and worse oh, over the years. Disney yeah. used to be obsessed with it. They would show you the little videos. Look, we filmed him doing his dialogue and then we made the face look exactly like his face. Well, if, if that's not the character, don't do that. Right. Although they were, when they were doing it for guys like Terry Thomas, it, 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 it was a funny joke, you know. But when you've got guys that are that are known just for, you know, some cheap disposable entertainment and the whole joke is oh look it's uh it's Woody Allen for instance you know right. uh, it's it's not funny anymore and it's distracting and it completely removes any ability of of the voice to become the character's voice as opposed to Woody Allen's voice superimposed on top of an animation and i don't think Woody Allen was too into that either no he's not given he's phoning it in there versus well, i would imagine versus Maybe literally. Like, this, is a, this is a good comparison because <laughs> Even though Tom Hanks is the A topest top A list triple A like that, he was just coming off like two Oscars. I don't know if what the timeline was there, but he's he's at the top of the thing. You get the impression that he didn't phone in Woody, and certainly not in the second and third one. You know that he was actually acting for that role in the yes. way that Tom Hanks does. You know, yes, absolutely. All right, we're we have talked so much, and I know there's so much more for us to talk about. So we're gonna pause it. We're going to end part one of this podcast here, and we're going to come back. Is it okay? Will you guys come back for part two next week? I can't wait that long. Well, you're going to have to. John, will oh, you be the back? Anticipation or, will kill me. Or do you refuse I'll, to return? I'll consider it. All right. All right. Well, while they ponder, um, I will thank you for listening to part one of the uh, Pixar podcast at The Incomparable. This is Jason Snell for John Syracuse and Steve Lutz. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The helpful Skype volume leveler will turn me into a gigantic, blown-out clown pocket. But it hasn't. Good. I'm glad to hear that. This pleases me. Did you just say clown pocket? (laughs) (laughs) I I went to Urban Dictionary and looked it up, and indeed, uh, Rich Toscano's description of it was correct, at least from the Urban Dictionary perspective. We had a friend who's who was it his story steve and i and several other friends from college had had uh, dinner last week and uh, a friend who's a freelance journalist had an editor tell him was it that his story was a was a clown pocket he said editing one of your morning briefs is like mending a clown pocket yeah it did not mean what he thought it meant <laughs> oh no it did not <laughs> <laughs> But he's trying to be hip and happening and with it, so he's using references to the pockets of clowns. It strikes me that a grammarian should be aware that there are uh, multiple connotations of any given term that one might use. What's the hmm. other connotation? What is the, what is the one he intended? <laughs> like an actual clown pocket. <laughs> like, yeah, like a, a thing? Like po- I think he was being literal. A pocket on a clown? Because yeah. they're distinct from regular pockets in some way? They're, they're, they're big, big and floppy. Yeah. Like Bozo keeps his keys in his clown pocket. And if one broke loose, one would have a bit of a job trying to sew it back on. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty weak. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, that, that well spotted. I, I thought you were going to let the clown pocket sail I right by. It was bad audio because he couldn't have said clown pocket. <laughs> that makes no sense. Well, it still was bad audio, but you did hear it. All right. Yeah. I thought Up had the most PG or possibly PG-13 moment in any Pixar movie.
Uh, can can either one of you guess which moment I'm going to cite now? Hmm. Wow. Well, I think it's obviously when they found that bird and it had a clown pocket. <laughs> <laughs> no, in, no inside jokes from before the recording began. No, I'm already editing that one out. All right. 